And so after you're finished working with Reagan's administration in the White House, your, your career with civility and protocol just started to gain pace. Um, and you moved over to the, the State Department, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. But this was a specific role. It wasn't like, you know, you weren't being a super agent. You were focused on protocol. Protocol. So the Office of Protocol, the Chief of Protocol's office is located in the State Department. And but they technically serve the president from well, we all do, everybody in the government does, but the the we because we were there when the heads of state would come visit and we would meet with the ambassadors beforehand and set up all the logistics for a head of state visit or a head of a king, queen, president, prime minister, or foreign minister. So the 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 lowest rank that our office dealt with was foreign minister. And um, and so if somebody came to the State Department, we coordinated all of the events, the luncheons and those kinds of things, and just made sure everybody was briefed on the cultural differences. And and my, I was in charge, my, I was in the visits department. So whenever I would have an assignment, it would be to be in charge of the logistics for that visiting delegation. And we would we would, part of the program would be to go to the White House and meet with the president or go to Capitol Hill and meet with the House, you know, the Foreign Affairs, Senate Foreign Relations Committees, those kinds of things. So it was a lot of, you know, uh, working with security, housing, gifts, um, and seating and luncheons and receiving lines and uh, motorcades. Motorcades were always fun, especially if people didn't want to cooperate very well. I've had several you know, several heads of state, we go through it with their ambassador and expect them to have briefed everybody and they all just go get in whatever car they want to get in. And then they're surprised when the motorcade breaks in half and one part goes one way and the other part goes the other way and people are in the wrong place. Well, if you'd sat in the seat that we told you to, then you'd be where you need to be. So we had the, those kind of things. It wasn't always the earth shattering stuff, but, you know, we were part of bringing two parties together to have conversations about really important stuff. And so we were sort of the flies on the wall and the glue that held it all together and kept kept the process going so that people could gather to talk about these important topics. You know, the thing that intrigues me about that whole part of your life, or at least, you know, the questions that I think of, is like all these different cultures that have to come together for to create some sort of value and collaboration in Washington. But there's all these different cultures from all around the world, all of these different protocols. I mean, in my own household, I'm Canadian, my wife is British, and we're constantly having clashes of protocols and culture and learning about it and trying to figure out how to blend that all together. And that's in a marriage. And <laughs> it takes work and understanding. Um, and of course, I've got in-laws that are that are in Europe, and I've got in-laws in different parts of Canada, and all of them are different. than we say we, we all speak English, but we never say the same. It never means the same thing. Um, and there's many there's many crazy stories that I could share with you about what I would say something, and it means the total opposite in Britain, even though it's the same word. And you know, but I I can only imagine the complexities of that inside of all these different monarchies and royal families and government officials and trying to figure out how to not, you know, cause a trade or trade, you know, conflict or a war because someone said something that they thought was good, but would be, would be received wrong. Like, I mean, I think it's like, it's a, it's a perfect um, 
chemistry set of what's wrong with the world today and figuring out how protocol works and so that we're not also bloody polarized. So a good example that, you know, you just, I don't know, is it the end of the world or is it the beginning of the end of the world when these things happen? I, you know, probably not, but just imagine um, we had uh, a, a state, a luncheon at the state department and it was with, um, it was one way or the other, I can't remember which way it was, but it was Chinese officials or Taiwanese officials, all right, it was one or the other. And the China- Never, the, never are the two in the same room at the same time. <laughs> and and, and the, the China, let, let's just say it was the Chinese. And so we're meeting with the Chinese and the, the tableware, this China underneath it said made in Taiwan. It was just an oversight, okay? But mm -hmm. it, it had to be changed. We figured it out and it was changed, but the caterers brought it in. But who would have thought you needed to look at the bottom of the plate? Because what, you know, and maybe nobody in the delegation would have picked up the plate to check. But a lot of times that's where China was made was either China, <laughs> China, or in, in Taiwan or Korea or Japan, et cetera. And so that was, that could have been taken uh, it could have been an insult to somebody, and yes. then the, the, yes. the, the, and, depending and, on how they would respond to that, could change the entire rapport of any conversations that happen the rest of that day. Yeah, if you spend half the, if you have to spend your time apologizing for an oversight, and I didn't mean to do that, then people start to wonder how how much care you're taking on things. I mean, it just it's that kind of stuff in our life is is a really good example. Is we don't. Mistakes are mistakes and people aren't perfect and nobody's, nothing's ever perfect. But that's what we try to anticipate. The word anticipation again is to look ahead and think through the things that could potentially cause friction and to avoid those when possible so that the things that really cause friction were, that was the focus of what you had to talk about. And you were talking about the serious stuff instead of the incidental things that were sort of silly, but could, could potentially get in the way of a good relationship. Now, I, I talk to my, you know, my team and my clients all the time that you can do a great job and deliver on the product, on the solution, but if the people that you are delivering it for don't feel like you cared, that don't feel like you listened, that you insulted them because you didn't understand their company or their, their department's you know, yeah. particular nuances, all of a sudden, the great value you create, it can be whitewashed with it didn't matter because of X, Y, and Z. And I, I tell my team, like, yes, we got to understand what we need to deliver, but we also need to understand what they care about and connect those two things together and make an emotional connection to the solution and not just a black and white commodity connection to the solution. And I think that that's true in all of the and that's human relationship in, in you know in its all of its complexity isn't it it is and if you think the the word protocol means first glue and so that it, right. this is really our opportunity as a country to create that first glue that first bond so so while i didn't negotiate world peace my role in it and my colleagues role in it was not an insignificant role because if we didn't pay attention to some of the details and the intricacies and the things that were important to our guest um, as well as what's important to our host to the host then we were falling down on the job so one of the things i think that you, you can think about it in terms of um oh 
A good example is the protocol is rules, right? People think of that as the rules and you have to follow strict rules of protocol in order for everything to be right. Well, that's not necessarily true. It's more of a platform and in technology, we understand the word platform. It's more of a platform for having a conversation and communication. So for example, just to use a little silly little thing, the tradition is that the guest of honor sits to the right of the host. All right, so, so there's signals in that. So you put, that's our tradition all over the world. The, they sit to the right of the host. And how it started out that way is sort of probably biblical. I mean, there's a lot of things, right? hand of got all sorts of stuff, but that's the tradition. All right, now the challenge is what if your head of state who's visiting is hard of hearing in their left ear, which has happened. So do you force that issue and make that happen and not have a, just because that's the symbolism and that's the tradition, or do you address that and then amend, change, make an exception based on logic, re reasoning and practicality? So it's not so much that the rules of life, the rules of protocol, the rules of anything we do need to be so hard and rigid that says, this is it, it's black and white, there's no other way to do this. It's more like we need guidelines in our world. We need a way, we need to know that there's some predictability about something. So whether it's being a leader in your company, et cetera, we all need kind of we, the rules of the road, you need to know where the bumpers are in the road and the lines to, you don't, you, you cross the lines, you could get hit head on. So, but you know what, if there's a problem with a big pit pothole in the, in one side of the road and you put some cones out and you slow it down so people can get on the other side of the road and get around the pothole, there's a reason for it then it's not just random. So this is kind of a metaphor for me about life is that we can, we can have process and procedure and rules and organization, et cetera. But if that, if they exist just to exist, they're not really doing what they're supposed to be doing and flexibility and, and adaptability are really key to success on any level in life, as far as I'm concerned. So where is civility and that level of understanding practical protocol, your company name, <laughs> practical protocol today, because today we see more, you know, there's more attempts to polarize groups and to make everything you're on my side or you're not on my side. And yet, I think in the Western world, whether you're in the United States or Canada or the United Kingdom, the vast majority of us are not left and we're not right. We're kind of this silent middle that, you know, we probably are fiscally conservative, but we're socially liberal and we just want life to get on so we can have happy, healthy lives with our families and friends. But that's not the world that we see in the media. That's not the world that we experience on social media. It's either my way or the highway. And if you don't agree with me, you're my enemy and you're wrong and you're dumb and you're stupid. I mean, we have lost practical protocol we, in, yeah. in, in our lives in, in so yeah. many ways. We have. Um, and it, it comes down to, I think a big key in this is humility and intellectual humility where we have, we have enough backbone, we have enough education as individuals, we're smart enough human beings to have a position on something, to feel strongly about something, but also enough humility, intellectual humility means knowing that we could be wrong. So I have a lot of strong feelings about things, but I also know I don't know everything. And I, life is a, is a continuum of growth 
and learning for me. And I'm, I seek new knowledge and I want to hear the opinions of others. I don't have to agree with it all. And I have my version of the world because of my own experiences, but I need to respect that they do too. And I think where we run into the challenges, it's very simple. There's a very simple way to, to slow this down a little bit and slow ourselves down a little bit, which is to say, I believe before we say something that is essentially an opinion. Because so much I hear just from the simple communication skill is, this is it. This is fact. This is the way it is. And if you really sit back and look at it, is it? Is there anybody in this entire world who can tell you 100% about how to handle COVID? Right. If we're being- I've heard, I mean, I'm in several different uh, entrepreneurial groups. Some of them are focused on technology and we have, we've had a lot, of, a lot of deep insight into the labs who are researching the vaccines and all this stuff. And what I can tell you is I have respectfully listened to people who are against vaccines and have a lot of evidence and are for vaccines and, and they've done, you know, and I've had deep sort of, you know, workshops on the DNA and the RDNA. And I, I, I probably had an opportunity to learn more. But what I can tell you is I've been in the room with a dozen experts talking about this topic and they have vastly different perspectives. And so you just got to decide which way you want to go, because, you know, I think in the world today, and I, I heard this quote a few weeks ago, and I, I really loved it. He said, it's that opinion is the wilderness between knowledge and ignorance. And it's that middle ground. The problem in the world today is people think that their opinion is confirmed knowledge. That's correct. And that's, that's dangerous when you, if you don't understand your opinion, what I believe is such as opposed to what I know. Yes. And you know, a lot of people know what they know, and some people, know, you know, know what they don't know. But there's an awful lot of people in the world who don't know what they don't know. Exactly. And, and I'm one of those. Yet, people. <laughs> what's that? One of those people. I, well, I well, know, we all, that we I don't we, know we, what we, I don't we, know. Yeah, but you know, but <laughs> when we form an opinion that says this is the way it is based on the fact that I don't know what I don't know, and I'm not even being self-aware of it all of a sudden you've got everything is black and white. And if you are for or against a mask or for or against, um, you know, some sort of particular group, you know, you know, there's a lot of cancel culture stuff that happens in the world and lots of it is justified and rational and, 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 and drives awareness. However, if I am not paying attention to a particular topic, that doesn't mean I'm for it and it doesn't mean I'm against it. It's simply not, it just means I'm not participating and because I'm focused on something else that I probably passionately care about, that doesn't mean I'm against that particular group. And, you know, I, I speak to my teenage and my young adult kids and they say, well, if I don't promote this topic or that topic, the people in that group, you know, want to lambaste me that I'm against it. I'm like, I'm, I'm just for something else. I'm not against their topic. And there's an awful lot of that that is happening as well that is really, yeah, you know, really, you know, interesting, but it's certainly comes down to you know, lack of civility, lack of protocol, and lack of sort of like common human decency to recognize that we all have different experiences and different perspectives. And, you know, if there's one thing I could advise everyone is like, at, at least listen for the context and the perspective of the other before you decide to be judgmental, because I think, I think there's a lot of danger in that. Shame, blame, sarcasm, Mm -hmm. anger none of that leads to anything good 
No, no, it just it, it creates it an amazing conflict. It, it doesn't raise it doesn't raise our, you know, to use all sorts of different analogies, it doesn't raise our vibration. It doesn't raise our positive energy vibration in this world. If, if, if you think of that as that we're all energy and we're all interconnected, none of that helps is, is a positive force. And it, it causes change sometimes, but it's not always the right change. And it doesn't necessarily create lasting and impactful change. It creates reaction. And the reaction sometimes can be knee-jerk reaction to suddenly behave the way somebody else is pushing you to behave, but that doesn't mean that you buy into it. It means you're be, you're being you feel forced into something. And my dad said something a long time ago, one time when I was in high school or something. You know, I guess I was looking at the world kind of black and white on an issue, and he says, "Shelby, there's a lot of gray in the world," and 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 it's not that's not meant to be wishy-washy. That's 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 real. Mm -hmm. That's real life, and very few things are one or the other. And um, so people who, who are very, you know, there's all sorts of people in the world. And, and I love that about this world. I embrace that. I don't want us all be the same. So I need people in my world who I call lines and columns people who, you know, accountants and scientists and people who do deductive reasoning. And I'm more of the dreamer, the visionary, but they, we, the world needs us too. too because we need to break out of the barriers and think in a different way so that there becomes inventions. And then the scientists and the people who do the lines and columns can get work together with people like that to execute and implement and integrate and get that stuff out in the world. And that's a positive coexistence. Right now, they're being pitted against each other. Where's the, where is the hope in that? No, well, but I, I you know, I don't think people are thinking about it that way. I, and I think the, the the different policy makers and the different groups, there's a lot of different contradictory motivations for these sorts of things happening. And you know, some of it's power in politics, some of it's money, some of it is passionate belief, some of it is science, some of it is faith. And you know, uh, and of course, there's freedom for the sake of freedom. And, and all of those things. And how do, you, how do you balance out the freedoms that we have in the West with some practical reasons why we need to do some things differently to protect the greater good today yeah. you know, as people, but then also not allow policymakers and politicians or you know, whomever you know, escalate that so that you are just stripping away everyone's civil rights at the same time. And yeah, yeah. You know, is it, big... Does it make sense to do things differently? Does it make sense to do things differently when there's a crazy virus going on and people don't know? Sure. Do we need to constantly just be black and white and change policy to put more controls in place? I don't know. I mean, I think it's a crazy world. And all I do is try to keep me and my <laughs> friends, my family and my employees as safe as we possibly can. So, And at the same time, being practical about we got to get on with our lives. we got to get on with work. And what can we do that makes sense? I mean, yes. Yes, exactly. you know, if anyone after after the fourth or fifth or 27th wave, if people <laughs> kept saying, hey, we got to lock down for three more months and stay home and, and and help and buy stuff on Amazon. I don't think anyone would tolerate that today. It made sense in the spring of 2020 because there was so much unknown and uncertainty. Yeah. 
but it also made sense. Okay, we've got we've got a better understanding of this. Like, let's start to open up the world while we work on a vaccine. In the meantime, socially distance, wear a mask, wash your hands, use hand sanitizer. You know, and you know, don't do anything that's going to put yourself at high risk when we don't know how fast this thing is spreading. If you're sick, you know, stay home. You know now, yeah. Right. And, you know, but don't be like, but I think the, the biggest concern is the, is the polarization of, you know, driving my rights for the sake of rights or fear for the sake of fear. And there's, there's, I think there's, there's three things going on. There's the middle ground of people. Hey, I'm going to do what makes sense. I'll get vaccinated. I'll do this. I'll wear a mask when I need to, you know, but I'm not going to say no for the sake of saying no. And I'm not going to hide in my basement and say, I can't go outside because I'm afraid I'm going to get sick either. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we need to, we, we, you know, there needs to be a balance of moving forward in life, right? It's all about Now, it. you started a business. After all of your government work, you start a practical protocol and you've got a business. And, like, you know, I remember my first clients, right? Like, I could go back and who was my first client in that first business? But, like, like everyone will remember your first client in practical <laughs> protocol. Tell us about your first couple of clients because I was like, what? <laughs> Well, I guess, I, you know, it's one thing to have a story about working for Reagan, but now let's talk about the next two global <laughs> leaders that you became clients for you. Nelson Mandela. Uh, I was referred to. Uh, that, was it, that, was, that was your that was first client. Uh, your, your client number one. Client number one was Nelson Mandela. And this was before he was president. It was right when he was out of prison. So there was a lot of buzz and he was, it was a very interesting time. He was coming to the United States for the first time to meet with President Bush and other, uh, you know, and the people on Capitol Hill and different constituencies around the country. Um, and I, so the, the White House, the, I think it was the African National Congress that, um, that was sponsoring their trip, his trip. And they asked um, a man who has since departed this earth, a man named Bill Sitman, who was in the National Security Council at the time. And they asked him who, you know, if they had a recommendation for somebody who could coordinate the visits to the White House, the State Department of Capitol Hill. And he said, yes, but I happen to know somebody who has business doing this. And I had just launched the business. So he referred my first client to me, which was I'm very grateful for. It was um, it was a very unique experience spending time with he. And at the time he was married to Winnie Mandela. But of course, they'd been apart for 26 years. Now they were together and uh, going to Capitol Hill and doing different meetings and things like that. So both of them were interesting. He was so soft spoken and gracious and kind and considerate. And of course, I, again, I'm not negotiating anything with him. I'm just trying to help him get his job done. So I'm opening doors for him. I'm making sure that, you know, everything's smooth sailing so that they don't have to worry about where they're going to go get into the white house and how, what time they're meeting the president and that kind of thing. And making sure that we've got all the bases covered. Everybody's, you know, got their clearance done so they can get through security. Okay. Et cetera. So I have a very logistic job. It's very, uh, you know, nuts and bolts, but it's, it's also about helping to build that relationship and make sure that when those meetings happen there, it's, it's, there's no awkwardness that I've, you know, I've taken away all the noise essentially. And if there's positive or negative that come out of the meeting, it's all on them. <laughs> so it's all between the two of them or the two of the groups that are meeting. So we had the opportunity to do that. I remember running around the hotel with uh, Winnie Mandela and uh, the president, well, he wasn't the president at the time, um, Nelson Mandela, we were looking for a box that included a headdress that Winnie Mandela was looking for and somehow it had gotten misplaced. So these things happened. So she, I was going to look for it. And she's like, I'm coming with you. So we all kind of went looking for this headdress, which is sort of, for me, it's kind of fun because 
usually that's my job, you know, and they sort of joined in the hunt and, and it made them to me very real, um, approachable human. people. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's yes. like, Hey, come help me find my shoes. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and when he was, uh, they were both, you know, obviously they have a history. Uh, he was put in prison, um, f for a reason, whether it was just or not, he was, he was, part of a movement and Winnie Mandela carried on that and she had a lot of issues um, politically that um, she had a lot of criticism for how she was. My personal experience with them was as two people who were just normal people doing their normal thing. I mean, we didn't talk about how prison was. I didn't talk, you know, we didn't, we didn't get into those kinds of discussions. We were just doing some basic stuff and it was really an interesting time. And then, and then talking about grandchildren and things like that. It was really it was fun. It was very, and it was an honor. And I, and it was neat to see him go on to be president and have such a wonderful legacy. Well, and after that, you know, you didn't, you didn't downgrade your client list. You kind of <laughs> elevated it another level and you, you, you had another global leader as client number two. And who was that? That was the Pope, Pope John Paul II. Yeah. He was um, my a man who became my business partner, a man named John Walsh, approached uh, me about going to Poland um, to help them with a visit of the Pope. The Pope had agreed to come to consecrate the wing of a children's hospital in Poland. And John was uh, working with an organization that his father founded called Project Hope. And Project Hope had built that wing of the hospital and gotten funding and done all sorts, opened this new wing of this children's hospital. And so he said, you know, well, we've got I met him because he had helped the President Reagan come over to Poland right after he was out of office and I was involved in that visit. So that's how we met. And he said, can you help me with this event? So off we, you know, we went to Rome and met with the Pope's people and the, that sounds funny, the Pope's people. But, you know, what struck me about that is we walk into the Vatican, if anybody's been to the Vatican or even just seen pictures of it, you know, it's a glorious monument to Christianity, to Catholicism, and the, the Swiss guards are, are the ones who guard the entrance, so they're all in these bright colored, you know, sort of medieval outfits and everything, and so it was myself and John Walsh and the a local contact there that he had named Walter and the three of us were walking in the halls and I start there was these huge doors with big not you know lions had door knockers on them and all that and they were just bigger than life doors and I started looking around and I'm in the middle between them and I started saying lions and tigers and bears I mean because I felt like it was I felt like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz walking in this place that there was nobody else around, just the three of us walking glass. down through, through, you know, and it's, I'm here I am, I'm just looking for the, for Toto, the dog, because to come out from anywhere and the wizard to come from behind the thing. So we go into this big room, this huge room with this little couch, the three of us all sit on this little couch in this huge room that's beautiful with no other furniture. Then we walk into a hallway and it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And now I feel like Alice in Wonderland because it's like, you know, perspective wise, it's getting smaller and smaller. We walk into this yeah. tiny little whitewashed room with no decor and a wood table and in comes a guy named father jeevish who was his was the pope's right hand guy and father jeevish was polish so they were both and because the pope was polish they were both um very inclined to go back home to warsaw to krakow where he's from and to go help consecrate this children's hospital and i thought after having worked with the white house and the president, you know, when you go to the Vatican as a president of the United States, there's still, it's, it, it's there are little po politics that go on there in the negotiations, a little tit for tat, a little, you know, there's a little gamesmanship that goes on. I thought they were going to be kind of difficult. And we said, well, we've got this receiving line for 150 people 
um, to meet the Pope. And they go, okay. <laughs> I thought they were gonna say, you can have 10 people, you know? And they said, no, no, that's no problem. Wow. So we did this whole receiving line of all sorts of dignitaries and he couldn't have been better. He came in the Pope mobile, was fun. We had, and I, and I don't know. It was like, I, was a, I was 11 years old and the Pope came to my province and to, uh, and, and to give an outdoor mass to bless a fishing fleet. And so um, we had family in that town and that whole town and the highway and everything was shut down 24 hours before he was to arrive. So I remember as a child, my parents and several of my other aunts and uncles, we all had to leave 36 hours ahead of time to go all live in the basement of one of my mother's first cousins so we could be in the town to be able to walk down to get to attend this mass. And I was, I was probably about 40 feet away from him to his left when he was giving the mass. And I mean, that, that was, it was incredible, but you know, it was, I just remember it being like, we gotta, we gotta go and, you know, a day and a half beforehand and live in someone's basement to be able to attend this thing. That, that was sort of how restrictive the highways and the roads were while he was doing his drive through communities. And, was, and the uh, amount of people that he drew too, right? So you didn't want to be stuck uh, in miles of traffic. And yeah, yeah, he he was he had quite the ability to draw an audience, and um, and he was a very kind and gentle man. From my again, from my perspective, he came in and um, with, not scripted. He went over and blessed each child that we had. We had a whole like these little wooden stools, and when he came in to consecrate the wing, we brought in the wellest patients, and they were little kids, you know, cancer patients they were all in their nightgowns and hospital you know pajamas and things like that and they were sitting on these little wooden stools and then over here we had all of the dignitaries you know a presidential delegation a congressional delegation all these big wigs from Warsaw and Krakow and the Pope and he gave the consecration in the room and then he walked across the room and he blessed every child in the room personally touched their head and blessed them and that really moved me. I'm not Catholic, but I was like, that was massively moving to me to see the, the humanity there and the compassion. Um, and of course these, oh, I could get these kids that just, you know, you, you wanted them to have some hope. And so it was very, it was very moving. And I know that we, we took Pete Souza, who was one of President Reagan's photographers, who's better known now because he was also Barack Obama's photographer and he became sort of has his own celebrity status as a photographer. So I hired him because he's an old friend and I, and I hired him to come be the photographer because I knew that he knew how to stay close to the principal, but not get in the way, you know, to do, to do it right. You hire people who aren't used to doing this. They just get all tripped up and they're in the wrong place all the time. And it's, you, I wanted somebody that I didn't have to explain the job to. So he, and he was a great photographer. So he's right there doing his job. And we walk, the Pope walked down the hallway to go to the Pope mobile and the, these doors slammed in front of us. And we're like, wait, that wasn't part of the plan. And next thing you know, the doors open up and Pete is sort of thrown in our face, kind of pushed back. I'm kind of semi-exaggerating, but not really. You know, all of a sudden Pete's coming back our way. And he's like, I ended up in the bathroom. With the <laughs> Which is I, I remember I remember when I was at that Pope event, that mass, and I was just, I think I was 11 or 12 years old. I was young, but it was the first time I saw you know, photographers with these like 18 inch, two foot long telephoto lenses trying to get the right shots of the Pope. I'm like, this is like something I, like the celebrity that I, the first time, that, that was probably my first experience with experiencing the paparazzi celebrity of a global, a global leader. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, <laughs> photographer getting pushed out of the way, yeah, but they still had a lens that could probably zoom in on, 
on, on his on his eyeball, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. 